Good evening. Uh, we are finishing up 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tonight and moving into chapter 2. Just to review, we talked about how the early church, the, the opening chapters of 1 Corinthians are about unity within the body of Christ and how there were factions in that church. That was the main issue in that church, even though they didn't recognize it. Paul had to hear that from one of the members instead of one of the leaders. And so the first several chapters of, the, of this letter are about unity. And last week we saw how unity is built on the idea of the cross and how what makes us equal is that Jesus died for us all. And isn't it interesting, when we as Christians focus on the gospel, on Christ crucified, Christ risen again, uh, Christ's saving death for us and his resurrection from the grave, things tend to go the way they should. Things tend to, uh, we tend to get along well. When we start to vary from that, when we get into these side issues, that's where the divisions start. Uh, the cross, last week we saw how the cross is a message of God's foolishness overcoming the world's wisdom, God's weakness overcoming the world's strength. And this week, we're going to see God use that, how God uses that very strategy uh, after the time of the cross. So it makes me think, before we get into the Word, uh, and we're starting with chapter 1, verse 26, by the way. Again, if you have a Bible in front of you, either digital or physical, you're going to get a lot more out of this. So I hope you've got a, a scripture you can read along with me with. But it makes me think about when I was a kid, when we were all kids, we remember the anxiety that came whenever teams were being chosen on the playground, whether it was touch football or baseball or kickball or dodgeball, you didn't want to be one of the last kids picked. And so you were sweating it out because if you were the last kid picked, you would hear everybody laugh just loud enough for you to hear, knowing that you were rejected because it went on a very specific hierarchy. The kids that were the biggest and the strongest and the fastest and the kids who had mastered the whole eye-hand coordination thing, they were the ones that get, got picked first. And in very ruthless logic, it trickled down from there. And as cruel as that was, in a way, it prepared you for the rest of life because the rest of your life you would, you would encounter situations like that. When you got to be a teenager, anytime you asked someone out on a date, um, when you were applying for colleges and scholarships, when you were applying for jobs, when you were pushing for promotions later in life, it always goes to the person who's most qualified. It tends to be the person who fits certain parameters. And I'm not necessarily saying that's all bad. I'm certainly not saying that the world should reward mediocrity. After all, uh, the system we have rewards hard work and goal setting and achievement. It produces good results. I don't want to live in a city where decisions are made on which bid to accept to build the new bridge based on, well, we ought to give this company a hand because they haven't won a bid in a long time. No, I want them to choose the company that does the best work. But we need to recognize that this whole merit-based system that the world operates on is not how God operates. It's not how God chooses. And why not? So that's what this chapter, that's what this passage is about, beginning with verse, well, verse 26. He's just gotten through saying that the cross is the foolishness of God overcoming the wisdom of the world and the weakness of God overcoming the strength of the world. And then he says in verse 26, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So what is he saying? He's saying, remember when you first became believers, you weren't very far in society. You weren't strong. You weren't wealthy. You weren't well-connected. You weren't well-educated. You had nothing to commend yourself. Now, Paul is not criticizing the Corinthians. He's saying God didn't adopt you into his family because of anything you brought to the table. Let's all agree on that. And it is noteworthy to look back in, in biblical history and, and in early Christian history and find that one of the real criticisms of the church, one of the, especially among Gentiles, one of the reasons people gave for, man, I don't want to be one of those Christians, is it was thought to be a religion for slaves, a religion for slaves and women and others in first century culture who were not seen as being culturally important or powerful. And note when he says, not wise according to worldly standards, some Bibles say according to the flesh. What he's doing there is he's differentiating between God's wisdom and the world's wisdom. God's wisdom is the ability to choose the right path, to follow God and do what's right. Worldly wisdom is similar, but it, it refers more to making money. It refers more to getting ahead or becoming popular. Worldly wisdom is, is knowing how to, uh, how to get things done, how to work the system. And so what he's saying is worldly wisdom may get you ahead in this world, but it doesn't get you anywhere with God. Neither does physical strength, neither does political power, neither does earthly wealth, neither does uh, being well-connected. In this world, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But with God, who you know doesn't matter except knowing Jesus Christ. And one more thing before I move on. I, I promise I won't spend this much time on all our verses tonight, but he's mentioned wisdom and strength and wealth. And those are the same three things that are mentioned by Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 9. And, and you may remember that. That's one of the more famous passages in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, let, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast of his strength. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. And so it's obvious Paul is using that passage as a template. And anybody from a Jewish background or anybody from a biblically knowledgeable background at the time would have recognized it, would have said, oh yeah, Paul's just saying what Jeremiah said back in the day. So keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that in a minute. He goes on and says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So he's saying, God chose you in spite of your character and qualifications, not because of those things. And that's fine because look what he's done in your life up till now. And Paul's saying, isn't that always the way God works? That's God's MO from the very beginning. The first chapter or first book of the Bible is Genesis. One of the main themes of Genesis is the older will serve the younger. We see it all through Genesis. The, the younger brother, the one that's often disregarded, ends up on top. Joseph is the prime example. But that's not all. Throughout Scripture, God tends to choose people in spite of their qualifications, not because of them. Abraham, if you're going to start a nation, you don't start with someone who's already 75. Uh, Moses, if you want a freedom fighter, you don't want somebody who's got a murder record. 
you think about David. If you want to choose the next king, you probably don't choose the youngest, smallest, most disregarded, even forgotten brother in a family in Bethlehem. Uh, Elijah, for all his good qualities, obviously he had his, he had his struggles with depression. At, at one point, even try to quit on the Lord. Uh, Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a coward. You can go down the list of, of every biblical hero, and they had serious, serious flaws that would have dis, disqualified them if we were making our choices. And then Jesus comes along, and Jesus threw open the door to everyone who would follow him, but he specifically chose 12. 12 people to be his closest disciples. Now, let's think about the people he chose. He didn't go to the rabbinical schools and choose the best and the brightest students who knew the Word of God the best and who had the most exemplary lifestyles. By the way, if he'd done that, Saul of Tarsus may have been one of his disciples. He didn't go, he didn't talk to athletes, he didn't talk to soldiers. Instead, he chose two fishermen, right? And one of whom was a loudmouth. Two brothers with anger management issues, a doubter, a tax collector and a zealot, those two probably had some interesting conversations. That's a recipe for disaster right there. And a traitor. Jesus chose Judas Iscariot. That's seven of his 12 apostles. And the other five we know so little about, it, we basically are left to conclude they didn't really make enough of an impression to even get mentioned very often in Scripture. So these were not people who we would have chosen to start a movement that was intended to change the world. We wouldn't have chosen, chosen them to manage a, a Waffle House, much less become on the, be on the ground floor of this world-changing movement, and yet Jesus did. Why does God operate this way? Well, the next verse tells us. In verse 29, he says, "...so that no human being might boast in the presence of God." God intentionally chooses people you and I wouldn't choose, including sometimes us, because he wants to show the world that it's him working and not us working. So here's a way to look at it. If a building catches on fire and there's hundreds of people in that building trapped, firefighters burst through and they rescue as many as they can. Do they go through saying, okay, let's find the most attractive people and rescue them? Do they go through saying, let's find the people who are well-dressed because they've got money? Do they go through and say, okay, let's, let's rescue only the people who have a certain education level or a certain income level or a certain qualifications on their resume? No, he doesn't do that. The people who get rescued from the fire, when they're sitting around there just charred and coughing up smoke and thankful to be alive, they're not sitting there saying, well, obviously he chose me because of my spectacular qualifications. No, those people are all sitting there saying, hallelujah, thank God I've been rescued. And that's the picture of us as believers in Jesus. Whether we are the janitor or the CEO, our salvation is not due to any of our own qualifications, so we don't have any room to boast. Do we still boast sometimes? Yes, but only when we stray from the true gospel. So what Paul writes here sounds a whole lot like what he writes in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For it is by grace that you are saved through faith, not of yourselves, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Can you say that a Christian should never boast? No, actually, there is a time for Christians to boast, and we'll talk about that later in this passage. But a Christian should never boast about their own qualifications, their own accomplishments. 
because that's a distraction from the gospel. He goes on and says in verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. See, there's where I say there is such a thing as proper Christian boasting. And here he is quoting, that's an exact quote from Jeremiah 9. Remember we talked about it earlier where Jeremiah says, let not the wise man boast in his riches the, or in his wisdom, the strong man boast in his strength, the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. So what Paul is saying is, If we're going to boast, and we should at times, here's what our boasting should sound like. I was a fool, but God is teaching me wisdom. I'm learning to make better decisions day by day. I'm still not there yet, but Christ has become my wisdom. Uh, I am now righteous in the sight of God. My righteousness comes from Jesus. I am seen as righteous in the sight of God because we traded places, Jesus and me. Or um, I am in the process of being sanctified. Sanctification means that I still have sin that has to be dealt with in my life. Christ is still doing a work in me. The Holy Spirit is still transforming me, and I need His presence day by day. And then there's that idea of redemption. I will be fully redeemed someday. Redemption is a very humbling term as well because it comes from the slave market. The way to be redeemed was if somebody paid the price for you to be set free. So all of these things are are things that that bind us together, that we share together as believers in Jesus. I'm thinking of uh, years ago when I pastored another church, and it was a much smaller church, about medium size, I'd say, and, and there, were, there was a man in the church who was one of the richest men in town who had built his own business from scratch and was incredibly successful, and he was just this very, very wealthy person. At the same time, there was a guy in church who was a serial drug abuser. He just couldn't seem to kick that habit. He'd been in and out of jail over and over again. Two people couldn't be more different in the same congregation, and yet this is what bound them together. They were redeemed by the blood of Jesus. They were being sanctified by His Holy Spirit. They were being taught His wisdom day by day. They had received His righteousness as a free gift. You see how this idea of uh, taking away our boasting and replacing it with the boasting that comes in Christ can bind us together. That rich man and that that, uh, drug user, both of them, what was the most important thing about them? It wasn't, it wasn't this guy's addiction. It wasn't this guy's success. It wasn't this guy's time in prison or this guy's uh, bank, uh, bank statement. The most important thing about both of them was Jesus Christ had rescued them. The cross had saved them. Okay? So let's move into chapter 2 now. And I, when I came to you brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So I have a theory, uh, a little controversial, it is just a theory. But my theory is that Paul was not an exciting speaker to listen to. 
Now, I know, I know he's the apostle, the greatest theologian who ever lived, the apostle who taught us about grace. He wrote half the New Testament, planted churches all over uh, the, the known world at the time, and he's the reason why Christianity invaded Europe. So many great things Paul did. And, and so it might sound like heresy for me to say this, but I see evidence in the Scripture that Paul was not an exciting preacher. He was maybe a, what we would classify as a mediocre speaker give you some evidence for my theory, and I'll, I'll tell you why this is important in a minute. 2 Corinthians 10.10. 2 Corinthians 10.10, uh, which we'll get to eventually when we get to 2 Corinthians, Paul is quoting the Corinthians and saying, you all say his letters are weighty and forceful, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. So Paul's quoting the Corinthians and saying, you all think my letters sound great, but my speaking is not impressive. Uh, in, in chapter 17 of Acts, 17, 18, in fact, when it records that when Paul went to Athens and he goes up on Mars Hill, that place where all the great philosophers go to share their latest message, and Paul is in the presence of these learned men who hear good oratory every day, and they hear Paul and they say, what is this babbler trying to say? You know, you and I would expect someone like Paul who carries the truth to stand up and these people would just be blown away by his presentation, but they weren't. I'll give you another evidence, and, and this is my favorite one. One of my, one of my favorite little stories in the scripture, Acts chapter 20 tells the story of a young man named Eutychus uh, who was from, this, from the town of Troas. Uh, Paul spoke in Troas one night, and, and Luke gives us some great details. And maybe I'm reading too much into this, but he says that it was nighttime, there were a lot of lamps in the room, and as Paul went on and on and on, this little boy or this young man, Eutychus, sitting in the window fell out because he fell asleep. He fell out of the window, fell three stories, landed in the street dead. Paul ran downstairs and revived him by the power of God. Now, I'll just tell you, I don't have the power to revive anyone who dies. But then again, I don't think anybody's ever died while I was preaching. So I've got that over the Apostle Paul. Okay, I'm mostly joking here. And maybe Paul was just being humble in the way he recorded these sorts of things, especially here in chapter 2. But what he says is, it wasn't because I was a great speaker that you got saved. In fact, that wasn't even my goal. And can I be honest with you? Can I be, at least attempt to be humble and transparent? Every time I preach, and I bet if we're honest, any preacher or teacher of the Word of God would, would at least to some extent agree with what I'm about to say. Every time I preach or teach, I have to war against and watch out for the motive that says, boy, I really want these people to be impressed with me. I really want them to think, boy, he did a good job. He really, he really had, did his work and, and, and explained it in a way I've never heard. And so when people come and say things to me like, hey, great job, I've never heard it explained that way before, or that's a, that's a wonderful sermon, boy, it really feeds my ego. I'm not asking you to stop doing that. I'm just telling you it becomes a trap for speakers, for preachers, that that becomes our motive. We want to get those attaboys, those, that, that human applause. And Paul is saying, when I came to you, Corinthians, that was absolutely not my motivation. I, I wasn't trying to impress you in any way. I just wanted you to walk away knowing Christ crucified. I kept my, I kept my message simple. I didn't try to impress you. I didn't 
come up with these grand rhetorical gestures. I just preached the word. And shouldn't that be the motive and the goal of any man or woman who speaks the word of God, whether from a pulpit or in a life group or in a home or, or in any other venue? And then think about this. He says, not with wise and persuasive words, this is in verse 4, but in a, in a demonstration of the Spirit and power. In a demonstration of God's power through the Holy Spirit is another way to say it. In other words, I was hoping not that people would be impressed with my words, but they would hear the message of Christ crucified and they would see the power of God. That if they were transformed, they wouldn't walk away saying, wow, because Paul was so eloquent, I am now saved. No, they would walk away saying, because God is so amazing, he has changed my heart. As far as Paul was concerned, he didn't even want them to remember that it was Paul who led them to salvation. He just wanted them to remember, it's the power of God who saves me. And so if you want to get something out of this teaching right now, it's this. Whenever the word is taught or preached, whether here at First Baptist or somewhere else, and you're present, you need to pray, Almighty God, make your power known through this message. Lord, let the, let the gospel be truly preached and, and let your Holy Spirit move in power to change lives. Because if that happens, if God's Holy Spirit moves in our midst and people's lives are changed, then unity is going to be one of the results because the people who get truly saved are going to be rescued by the power of God, not by the eloquence of a speaker, not by the entertainment of a well-crafted presentation. And again, that's not to say that there's anything wrong with being creative in the way you present the gospel or do worship. That's not, not to say that it's wrong to be a well-prepared, well-trained speaker. I believe that as a speaker or a worship leader or a Bible teacher, you should give the, give the Lord and the congregation your very best effort. But again, your, your motive as a speaker, teacher, worship leader should always be to, to point the finger, to point uh, the, the listener and the worshiper towards the cross of Christ. And the congregation's goal, the congregation's prayer should be, Lord, let your power be displayed in this place. And if that happens, we don't give credit to human preachers. And if that happens, there is no division. And we're one at the foot of the cross. So one of my... One of my favorite little stories I read years ago about uh, a man was talking about when he was a little boy growing up in another town. This is a long time ago. And they used to have dance classes as part of their curriculum. Every year at a certain point in the year, this was their PE. They would learn how to, how to do waltzes and other dances. Uh, hard to imagine today. Uh, this part's even harder to imagine. They would whenever that period of time, that period of the day would come, they would all get up and they would move the desks to the sides of the room and they would gather and the boys would get on one side, the girls would get on the other and the teachers would let the boys choose their dance partners. Sort of like choosing a kickball team or a, or a softball or football team on the playground. And you can imagine how that was even more hurtful for those young girls than getting chosen last for football would be for a little boy. Um, so the guy telling the story talks about how the teacher's aide in his class was a man who happened to be his Sunday school teacher at church. So the week was coming up when this little boy would be the first one to get to choose. 
And he was looking forward to it. Because when you're the first one to choose, you're going to pick the prettiest girl, right? I mean, that may be your only chance to dance with the prettiest girl the rest of your stinking life. And he was looking forward to it. And this man who was the teacher's aide, his Sunday school teacher, came to him at church the, the week before, the Sunday before, and said, hey, Robert, or whatever the kid's name was, listen, I know you're going to get to pick first this week when we do dance class. And I've been thinking, don't you think God wants you to choose Mary first? And that stopped him short because Mary was the one girl in class who was least likely to be chosen first. In fact, she was always chosen last. She was from a poor family. She didn't dress well. She was kind of plain looking, a little bit plump, uh, and she had a bad leg, maybe a club foot or something. So she wasn't even graceful. And because of all these things, she was very quiet and shy. And the little boy at first thought, oh, that's a terrible idea. But the more he thought about it, the more he thought, yeah, well, man, my teacher's probably right. And so that week, when it became time for dance classes, everybody pushed the desks uh, up against the walls and everybody gathered, uh, girls on one side, boys on the other. And little Robert got to be the first one to pick. And he walked to the middle of the room and he looked at Mary and he said, Mary had already kind of turned to the side. She knew she was going to get picked last. And he said, I pick Mary. And can't you picture two things? Can you picture the prettiest girls in class who were standing there beaming as if, come on, pick me first. And then picture little Mary who was kind of looking at the ground, suddenly looking up in this huge smile on her face. And Robert said, all these years later, I'm so glad I chose her first. I'm so glad I picked her above all the others. And I love that story because of, of the picture that it gives us of how God operates. God does not operate on the world's economy or the world's order of things. He chooses us based on grace. He chooses us, and because He chooses us, we have life. You and I don't have any reason to boast except to say, God has saved me through the blood of Jesus Christ and is now transforming me through His Holy Spirit. I've got heaven for my future. I've got redemption for my present, sanctification for the rest of my life. And this is a wonderful life we've been given. That is the only thing we have to boast in and let that bind us together as believers. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank You. Thank You for being the one who shows us amazing grace by choosing us, by adopting us through the blood of Your Son, through Your amazing grace. Help us, Lord, to overcome the arrogance, the self-righteousness that becomes ours when we forget the gospel. I pray that we would remember. We remember that we're saved only by you. Lord, bind us together in that knowledge and that humility. For it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.